my favorite things to say is actually, you know, baby steps are still steps. So, you know, you can still be moving forward if you're moving forward slowly. And when I've talked to people who have been, you know, struggling in early sobriety or what have you, um, who've been, you know, like wanting to incorporate all of these great tools into their lives, but have been having a hard time juggling them all at once. The number one thing I tell them is like, pick one thing, pick one thing and do that every day and incorporate that in. So like pick your, you know, meditation and incorporate that in every day. And then once you feel like that's a part of your life, then you can add something else in. So if you, and eventually these small steps, these small actions you're taking are gonna accumulate into a huge change. That was Tracy Murphy, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 136. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm super thrilled that you're listening in today, and I want to take a minute right here at the top to share some gratitude and then to share an exciting update. So first, seriously, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for valuing honest conversations. Thanks for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's hugely important. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking a minute or two to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. That's such a huge help in spreading the word and in helping new people find us. So thank you so much for doing that. The show currently has 233 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I would love to get to 500 by the end of the year. So thank you for helping with that if you have a minute to jump on and leave a rating or review. And more than anything, thanks so much for supporting and funding this show on Patreon. Together, we've built a truly community-funded podcast with no ads or corporate sponsorship, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, which I'm really excited about. So in a few minutes, I'm going to introduce you to today's wonderful guest. But first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to just quickly explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, honestly, I'm so over that approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, money, sex, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that we often use adult language, so fair warning on that, but we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when that's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, like I said, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. And now for that quick update that I said that I'm excited to share. Over on Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. 
That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with, and it'll hopefully continue to grow over time as the community grows and obviously then the funding grows with it. But higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities who are generously spending a few hours of their time with me, a white straight cis woman, to share their lives and stories with our majority white audience. Being able to pay all of our guests has been a dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work that they do, especially creative work, that means that it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio, even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. And believe me, it's not. So just know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. It's a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. Oh man, if you think it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait until you start getting my emails. (laughs) Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, a different organization each season. Uh, Past organizations include Black Lives Matter and the Venture Out Project, so you can feel awesome about that aspect of your contribution as well. When you head over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels that you can choose from, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Tracy Murphy. Tracy is a sober, cisgender lesbian whose passion is making sure people can see themselves represented in the recovery community. Tracy is the founder of LGBT Teetotaler, where she not only shares her story and experiences as a sober queer woman, but also highlights the stories of other queer and trans people in all forms of recovery. Her goal is to help foster a truly intersectional recovery culture where all sorts of people can see their experiences reflected back to them and be inspired to make changes in their lives, or at the very least, to know that they aren't alone. In this episode, Tracy goes into deep and honest detail about her own sobriety story. We talk together about why we quit drinking, what felt hardest at the beginning, which resources and tools were most helpful, the mistakes we made, the myth that things have to be horribly bad in order to justify making a change, and so much more. Tracy also talks to us about the ways in which drinking is intertwined with queer history and culture, and about the changes that she'd love to see in the recovery community to make it more inclusive for LGBTQ folks. I'm so honored that Tracy came on my show to share her story, and I hope that you love hearing from her as much as I did. 
So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Tracy, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, to talk about my, fa- well, I was going to say my favorite subject is sobriety. And I don't know if that's true, but it's one of them. And I haven't gotten the chance to talk about it in detail in a while. So I'm super pumped to have you here. Yay. Yeah. I love it. I love talking about it too and all the different things about it. So, so tell me something that you're totally obsessed with right now. Right now, I am just in general, I'm totally obsessed um, with reading about, um, anti-racism actually right now and, and learning how to be a better, you know, person in the society and taking down white supremacy. It's basically all I've been reading about. So I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) Hell yeah. Any book recommendations right off the bat that you want to give? Um, I just finished, um, Francesca Ramsey's, um, new book and that's called, well, that escalated quickly. And also Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. Those two were both, I flew through both of them. They were fantastic. Uh, Those are both on my list. And so it's nice to hear that. Yeah, yeah, what what have I read this year? Um, So you want to talk about race? That one was awesome. Yep. Yeah. I'm, that one's on my list. I haven't gotten to that yet. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, you and I should continue sharing book yeah. <laughs> notes because it sounds like we're reading very similar things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, so, so this is going to be like a really chill, we're going to talk about racism. We're going to talk about sobriety. Like, let's just yeah. have like this fun, easy going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, laid back topics that, you know, don't really affect many people. Right. No mental thing. health. No, not at all. This is just, no, this is just like light and breezy. This is the beach read podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome. So honestly, let's just dive into it. Tell me about the day that you decided to quit drinking. Like if you remember a specific day, like where were you, what was going on in your life? I'd love for you to set the scene for us. Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, I was in Hawaii on vacation by myself. Um, so when I quit drinking, I, um, I had, I had just like gone through this thing with a friend of mine who I had previously hooked up with and who was married and there was a lot of drama involved. Um, and I basically wanted to, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, my whole situation. So I thought, Oh, I'll go to Hawaii for a few days. Um, and, and take care of that. So when I, when I went to go to Hawaii, I told myself, you know, I'm just not going to drink on this, on this vacation. You know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deal with this without alcohol. Um, and you know, so I got there and then I of course drank, you know, as soon as I got there, I had a few beers and, um, and I didn't get like really super drunk. I only had, I think like three, three draft beers. It wasn't a lot. Um, but I woke up the next morning and I was just, again, just, really disappointed with myself because I told myself I wasn't going to drink and I did. So that, that moment, like my first morning in Hawaii, I just said, Nope, that's it. No more. I'm not going to do this anymore. This is not going to how going to be how I deal with things anymore. And, um, I cried a lot for the rest of my vacation because I had a lot of feelings, but, um, yeah, that, that's, you know, the short version of, um, of that last day that I drank and 
what I did. And, you know, I seemed like a very miserable person on the beach, but at least I was still on the beach, I guess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how long ago was that? Um, that was in January of 2016. So a little more than two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm interested to dig into so much of what came before that as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you categorize the role of alcohol in your life leading up to that? How do you think Uh, about that? Yeah. So I, when I was, um, I didn't actually start drinking at all until I was almost 21. Like I know a lot of people who have had a problem with drinking started much younger. I didn't, um, because there was alcoholism in my family, I was told myself I wasn't going to drink. Um, and then once I got a little older, I had a girlfriend at the time who, um, you know, she was really bummed that I didn't drink. And in order for me to like stay with her, I started drinking. Um, and as, you know, like as things went on being a lesbian, everything is in the bar scene, you know, that's how you meet people, especially, you know, in the early two thousands before social media was a thing or, or online dating or anything. So that, that was how you met people. And I also have pretty intense social anxiety that I actually didn't realize I had until I quit drinking, but the drinking helped me deal with being in social situations. So, you know, over the years, my drinking would ebb and flow, but it was never, most people wouldn't say that it was super problematic. I mean, I was always the responsible person in my group of friends. I, you know, I didn't get really shit faced very often. I would just get a good buzz. I would drink like one to six beers a night, which I had a tolerance and six beers very rarely even made me feel drunk. So it wasn't, a a big deal, but it was something that I was always thinking about, you know, like, especially near the end, um, I was in the mornings I'd wake up and I'd be like, you know, like, I just don't want to drink tonight because I just feel yucky, you know, not a super hangover. Just, I would feel yucky. I would have, I would be dehydrated and, you know, a slightly queasy stomach and, So I would tell myself that morning that I wouldn't drink that night. But of course, that night I would still drink. And it was just, I was always thinking about it, always thinking about it. And I was using it to, you know, deal with emotions. And, you know, if I was feeling bad, I would drink to numb it. Or if I was feeling good, I would drink to celebrate. And it just, I wasn't an alcoholic And I, but I could see myself headed that way. And I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be numbing myself anymore. So that's why I decided to quit. There's so much good stuff in that, that I can relate to personally. And I'm sure a lot of other folks can. So I just want to like pick that apart a little bit. One of the things that you said about starting to drink because the person that you were dating was drinking and just this, like the, the role of relationships in our relationship to alcohol, I feel like is often not talked about that much or not given like the weight and importance that it requires, I think. And I think that's one of the obstacles to sobriety too. Like even hearing you say a couple of times, you know, it's not like I had that much of a problem or like anything in that space. It's funny, like even how we judge, you know, having like a quote drinking problem, whatever that looks like. Right. Like I think about this all the time that it seems to be like such a binary thing. Like alcohol is a drug that's so socially accepted that the normal thing or the normalized thing is to be able to do this drug at like a socially acceptable 
level. And the only reason that's good enough to stop doing it is if you have a capital P problem, right? Which is alcoholism, right? And so it's like, it's so interesting, even like, it depends on what your group of friends do. Like I think about for me, I started drinking um, basically right when I went to college a couple times in high school, but mostly when I went to college and the binge drinking culture at, I mean, at least colleges in the U S for them, but like, it's really prevalent. And even like then into my twenties and into when I quit drinking, all of my friends drank pretty heavily. It was not mm-hmm. at all a strange thing to get blackout drunk or to be yeah. really drunk multiple nights in a row or to be. And so it's like, it's really hard to see if what you're doing isn't serving you. If everyone around you, like if it's so normalized. So it's interesting to just even hear that reflected back through your experience of like, yeah. Well, I, I didn't have a problem, but maybe I did. Like, it's so, it's, yeah. it's hard. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I often think, so I'm originally from New Hampshire, but about five years ago, I moved to Portland, Oregon and, um, with my girlfriend at the time. And she actually quit drinking, um, that year. So she quit drinking in November of 2013. And I think that was like the catalyst for me to start really thinking about my drinking because she and I drank the same. And I was like, Oh, like if she's quitting, is that, what does that say about me? Like, what should I be doing? And so that's when I really started thinking about it a lot. And then also being in this new environment where I didn't have all of my drinking buddy friends to like fall back and like compare myself to them. It made me really have to look at how I drank for myself and not how I drank in comparison to anyone else. And I think that that was like a big thing that did that for me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it was one of not the only reason, but it was one of the reasons my husband and I moved up to Bend, Oregon, um, which is where we live now. Um, in the fall of 2014, we were living in LA before, and there was something, and he's sober also, there was something really nice about moving to a place where we didn't know anyone. Not mm-hmm. to say that I don't still have really close friends that were friends from before I quit drinking. Of course I do, but that like fresh start feel of everyone who's meeting us is meeting us as people who don't drink and who like go to bed at nine. <laughs> it's like kind of yeah. nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And all the people that I know in, in Oregon, that's, that's it. They don't, even though I still drank while I was there, it wasn't in the same way that I drank here. I'm on vacation in New Hampshire right now, which is why I'm saying here, because that's where I physically am. But um, yeah, so it's, um, it's not the same way. So I, and I often say like, I don't know if I would have quit if I didn't move. Like, I don't know if I would have noticed it Mm -hmm. if I didn't move. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. Like thinking about the paths not taken or what if my life would have gone this way instead. So you said something before about that you were getting, you were sort of trapped in the cycle of, um, in the morning you would say, I'm not going to drink tonight. And then the night would come and then inevitably you would drink. What do you attribute that to? Like when you look at the gap between what you said you wanted and what you actually were doing, what do you think that gap was about? Yeah. I mean, I think it was probably, Part of it was at the time the job I had was really stressful. So I think part of it was trying to de-stress and and wind down in the way that, you know, people talk about drinking. Um, But also I think it's just, it was just in that same way where if you have like, you know, a pint of ice cream in the freezer or like a box of cookies somewhere. And you say to yourself like, oh, I'm going to like cut back on sugar and not eat dessert tonight. But you know, it's there. So you, you're going to have, you know, it's a hard, it's hard to actually not eat the cookies that are in there, at least for me, I don't know about anyone else, but you know, um, you know, it's hard to know that it's there or it's so easily accessible. Like it'll get into my, 
it just got into my brain. And I think that maybe, I don't know if I wasn't super committed to not drinking at that point, like at, you know, at night, or if it was because like, I just wasn't dealing with, you know, any kind of like behind the scenes kind of like issues that were going on. So it was like, that was my coping mechanism for everything. And then if I tried to just take that away, even for just a night or two, it was kind of like a hard thing to do. Yeah. I think there's some, I mean, everything you're saying is really honest. There's something really honest about the, what you were just touched on about commitment, this idea that like, <laughs> even when you're fully committed to something, it can still be really challenging. Cause like you said, yeah. you have to build the coping mechanisms and it's a whole thing that obviously we're going to talk about that, but that, that was true for me for a while too, not just with drinking, but with other things like so often. So I'm really interested in this idea of like how to close the gap between what we say we want and what we actually do. And in every area, I think that's a really interesting place to look at or essentially the phenomenon of like watching yourself make bad choices (laughs) Um, or I mean, and not to moralize it, but maybe like choices that aren't aligned with, you know, what you actually want to be doing. And so much of it, I think, does come down to commitment. Like we haven't fully committed. We haven't fully gone all in. You're still in that place of like waffling a little bit. And Mm -hmm. yeah. So hearing someone else speak to that, I think is comforting. Yeah. 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 It was, uh, you know, it was frustrating too. Cause it's like, that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be in the shower every morning and just be like, Oh man, like I did it again, you know, like, but yeah, it, it is. It's just the commitment part of it and trying to figure that, figure it out for yourself. Yeah. So the being in the shower in the morning and thinking, oh man, I did it again. It sounds like potentially there was some shame in there for you. And I'm interested to hear more about that. Like what did it, essentially, what did it feel like to be in that cycle? Yeah. I mean, and I think the shame was more in, in relation to me not being able to like follow through with what I said I was going to do. Um, I know in talking to a lot of other people who've quit drinking, they've, people have felt shame for, you know, like, you know, actions that they took while they were drinking. And I never really had that. And I think it was really just like me feeling like, Oh, like I, I just want to do this one thing. Why can't I do this one fucking thing? You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, when you say you're going to go to the gym and you just don't go to the gym and you're just like, Oh, like, how come I can't get to the gym? How come I can't do this one thing? And, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a little easier on myself now about that kind of stuff, but I think it's like, you know, part of like, you know, perfectionism and, and always wanting to do like all the right things. And you know, the right thing is to not drink every night. And how come you can't do that? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And if we had like the easy answer to that, we would be gajillionaires. So, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, but I think like one of the most honest things is like, oftentimes the reason that we can't do it or haven't done it yet is because like the thing that we say that we want to stop doing is serving us in a way, right? Like you yeah. mentioned, like, drinking culture and being a way for dating and to meet people. You mentioned it being something that helped you with social anxiety. Like if we weren't benefiting from, it's like, it's like that idea that alcohol, like it's this, it's not the problem. It's the solution to the problem and it works until it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it totally works until it doesn't. And then even when it doesn't work anymore, like you don't even realize it doesn't work anymore because it's just so insidious and it slowly creeps into like not working stage where, you know, it's, you don't even realize it. You don't realize it's making things worse. 
when it does. Yeah. And then you, yeah. and then it's easy to get stuck in like trying to chase the feeling that it gave you when yeah. it was working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the social anxiety thing, which I think is a really specific, like easy to articulate answer, but is there anything else? Like if you had to say, you know, drinking was the solution to X, like what are the couple of things that come to mind for you to be like, I was using drinking because right. Like that sort of fill in the blank. Yeah. Um, definitely the social anxiety, definitely, you know, um, being in groups of people, meeting new people, being in new situations, it's really, really hard for me. I'm, it still is. I just, you know, deal with it now instead of trying to like make it fade away. Um, also like I would drink a lot at like feelings I have, like I have like, I mean, I know a lot of people have intense feelings, but I just feel like I have intense feelings and it's, not easy for me to articulate them. So I would, I would drink at those feelings in order to like kind of tamp them down and make them easier to deal with. Um, was a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I, I, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say also just, you know, I would boredom or just hanging out or something to do. Like it was always something to do. You didn't even have to think about it. You'd be like, Oh, let's just go get a beer. You know? Yeah. That that becomes an activity in and of itself. Like drinking yeah. is the activity. Yeah. I thought yeah. about that too. It's, I think for me, and obviously a lot of this is like hindsight clarity of it's easier to think like, Oh, I drank because these reasons, right. It's not like I was necessarily so aware of that at the time, but I think for me, the couple of things that come up sort of in answering that same question, um, I don't know that it was social anxiety as much for me. I don't think that I ever really felt social anxiety to, like to the point of like using drinking to solve it, but it was more like using drinking to give myself like permission to do things that I wanted to do anyway, but because of any kind of like social contract, didn't know how to do. It was like a sort of like mm-hmm. a get out of jail free card, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I think that was part of it for me. And I also, and I've only recently started thinking about this. I've always been a very in my head kind of thinky cerebral person and having trouble with the like dropping into the body, like embodiment stuff. And alcohol was a really good way for me to just stop my wild monkey mind and be able to get into my body more. Oh yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I thinking about things so much without even doing before you do them. Yeah. 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 So do you feel like you were aware of the reasons that you were using alcohol when you decided to quit? Like, did you have a clear, like, okay, if I'm removing this coping mechanism, I'm going to have to build better ones or something like that? No, not at all. Um, I actually, so I, I tried to quit, um, in 2015. So I just stopped drinking and I didn't really do any work and like looking at why I was quitting or doing anything to deal with it. So it was, you know, a bit, I wouldn't say a spectacular failure, but it was, you know, I, I made it a few months and then I started drinking again. Um, but when I, when I finally quit in, in Hawaii that January, I, the next three months were just like hell for me. I didn't realize like how much I used drinking to help with my anxiety. Um, until I really like was focusing on it and like realizing that like it was on a daily basis. I was just super amped up. I had crazy anxiety. I was wanting to cry all the time. I, my stomach was just in knots all the time because I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Um, I actually, when I was a teenager, I, um, to deal with like depression and anxiety, I actually used to cut myself and then I stopped doing that. Um, 
you know, like late in my teens. Um, but when I quit drinking because the, the actual coping mechanism, I switched over to drinking. Um, so when I quit drinking, the feeling to want to cut myself came back because it was, I, I wasn't dealing with the actual feelings. I was just kind of like glazing over them. Um, with, with these other actions. So it was something that I really had to, um, kind of like look at and address within myself, like how, how this transference was happening. And I mean, I didn't go back to cutting myself or anything and I haven't had anything to drink. I've just kind of like figured out how to deal with my emotions in more of a holistic way. So do you feel like you were aware of any specific fears when you quit drinking? Like for me, I, so what I wanted was to quit drinking and have nothing else in my life change. Like that was my, I just thought I was going to remove this behavior that was linked into like my identity and my social life and literally everything. And it would just be this like totally fine transition. <laughs> Spoiler alert. That's not true. But my biggest fear was that I wouldn't be fun anymore. And so I'm curious what your fears were when you quit. Um, I think that I was afraid that, yeah, that that my friends wouldn't like want to hang out with me or they wouldn't think I was, yeah, fun. But I quickly was able to realize because I would still go out to happy hours with my, my coworkers and, you know, just drink iced tea or ginger ale. And I was like, oh, people still think I'm really funny. And in fact, I'm pretty sure they think I'm funnier than I was, you know, it, 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 it pretty quickly, I was able to get past that. But yeah, the feeling that I I wanted people to like me and I was afraid that they wouldn't like me if I quit drinking because like maybe my personality sucked or something. Um, I think that was a big one. Yeah. Did you have any negative reactions from people in your life when you quit? No, I did not have any negative reactions, but I also sort of attribute that to the fact that i lived 3000 miles away from all my drinking buddies. So I think that, you know, because we only were staying in contact through, you know, Facebook and Instagram, we were able to stay friends in a way that like didn't impact us like hanging out because I wasn't able to hang out and drink with them anyway. So, um, and, and, and everyone in Portland already like, didn't know me that well or already knew that like I was like going back and forth with drinking. So it wasn't as big of an identity issue for me out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause I think that's a, a thing that's very real and like a fear that's real for people of, Oh, how are other folks going to react? And I think it's, it's really easy to say things like, Oh, the people who love you aren't going to care. And sure that's yeah. true, but also it's like people might care and you might get yeah. shitty react. Like I definitely lost friends when I quit drinking and I guess the silver lining is that, oh, those relationships weren't actually that deep or real anyway, so that's fine. But it still feels really painful, not just in terms of losing other people, but I think this is something that I wish that that was talked about more is the grief that comes along with any kind of identity change, that even if you're making a choice that's you know, not self-destructive. Like if you're making a choice that's better for you, like it sounds like quitting drinking was for you and was for me, that there's, there can still be a grieving process. And so I'd, I'd really be interested to hear anything that came up for you, like in that regard. Um, I don't No, I mean, I can't really think of much of that. I was grieving, like losing, I mean, because 
I feel like I kind of like really gradually got myself to that point. So it was like when I quit smoking. So I quit smoking cigarettes in like 2010 or 11 or something like that. And it was such like a gradual quitting. You know, I did it over the course of like many years. I cut down so much and then I, you know, it was always in the forefront. So then the time I actually had my last cigarette, it wasn't, there wasn't anything left for me to like grieve. And I think it was not exactly the same with drinking, but it was similar enough in the fact that I had like been thinking about it and like reading about it and going back and forth with it and knowing that it, you know, that this was something that I was making a decision for, like strictly for me, like not one person told me that they were worried about my drinking or that, you know, like I needed to quit or it was strictly something to make me feel better. I feel like I, I was, I did it in such like a strange kind of like tapering sort of way, not technically tapering, like they act, people actually have to do with alcohol, but, um, in that sort of way that by the time I quit, I, I wasn't really grieving much of anything, even though I was fucking miserable because I had to deal with being a human and having emotions again. Right. <laughs> um, it was like, it was like the first like six months were like the worst of my life, but I, I wasn't necessarily grieving anything from it. It was just, yeah. It's inter- It's so interesting to talk to other people who have similar but different experiences because to hear you say that the first six months were so hard, I actually felt like the beginning of it for me was the easiest part because I ha- still had that denial of like, I'm just going to stop drinking, but everything else is going to be the same. I hadn't yet reached the point of confronting any of the reasons why I had started yeah. drinking so much to begin with. It, I feel like for me, a lot of the pain and the harder work actually came later. So for you in those first six months, Um, do you remember like any specific, either like resources or support or tools that helped or like a specific coping mechanism that you really worked to build early on? Like what was early, what was helpful for you in early sobriety? Yeah. Um, the first three months I was totally just like white knuckling it. My, um, my ex-girlfriend who I, I had moved to Portland with, she and I, um, are still really close. And so she was a big support for me. Um, just reminding me every day that, you know, like it's, I, every day is a success if I just don't drink and it doesn't matter what else I do or what I don't do. As long as I don't drink, it's a success. And then in, um, early May of 2016, I actually, um, signed up for hip sobriety school, um, with Holly Whitaker. And so I went through the spring 2016 class and that was what really changed my life. Um, her teaching me how to actually live and like enjoy living without alcohol and giving me all of these tools and, and ways to, to deal with all of the feelings I was having. Um, that, that was it. That, that was really the catapult and that, you know, got me over that like horrible fence that was misery. So Holly's so great. It was such a treat Uh, to have. I mean, that was a while ago that I had her on the show, but yeah, her opinions have shifted a lot of stuff for me too. Are there one or two things that you learned from her that were really particularly impactful that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, yeah. So one of them is that, um, well going, doing like meditation and breathing where like, it never occurred to me to do that before. Um, and that 
that helps me with my anxiety so much. Um, just, you know, like taking time out to meditate or even if I'm, you know, out like walking through the city, if I'm having a hard time, I just you know, pull into a side street and just stand there and like do some breathing exercises. And it really, really, really helped me out. Um, but also just knowing that like her teaching me that I don't have to do anything that just feels wrong to me. So like, if I have to just like stay at home for a day to take care of myself because I just emotionally just can't handle anything else. Like I can do that. Or, you know, I can, as long as I just like focus on like not drinking and just take care of that and just do the baby steps that I need to, you know, create the muscles that I need to be able to get past the cravings or the feeling like I need to drink or, you know, feeling like I need to escape anything. Um, the class really just taught me to, to know that like, I don't have to live in a way that I have to escape. Yeah, that's, that's so, so that's so well yeah. said. The thing that I think about a lot that was really pivotal for me when she was first on my show, and then obviously, you know, following her work in so much detail before and after that. Mm-hmm. So I think that she was the first person that I really heard speak clearly and eloquently about the myth that it has to be so bad in order to justify quitting and sort of that that because that even comes with its own shame because then you feel like I'm sober because I I'm not you know strong enough or normal enough or whatever to drink like everybody else there's like a particularly weird shame in that at least I felt and like her perspective of like you can just decide to stop doing it because you don't want to do it anymore. You don't have to wait until you like wake up in the gutter after like three days that you can't remember. And of course those stories are valid too. And those people, you know, like those stories should be told, but so much in the alcohol abuse space is those stories. Like the things I think that get popularized are the really like sensational accounts or memoirs. And so many of us exist in this like murky gray area where drinking makes us feel like shit, but we think we don't have the right to quit because it's not quote that bad. And I think I learned that from her. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, it doesn't have to be that bad. It just has to be like, it's you, you're allowed to quit because you don't want to have to metabolize poison anymore. Like, I don't, I don't see, you know, like alcohol is poison. And if your body can't, and if you don't like the way your body is metabolizing that, then you can, you can quit whether you have one glass of wine or one beer, or if you have a whole bottle of wine or, you know, like five cocktails, it, it doesn't matter because if you like, feel like shit and it makes you feel unhappy and you can tell the difference, then that's totally valid. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Something, um, that Laura McCowan, who's also been on the show, who I also know is a friend and I would say probably mentor, right. Of yours, like in this space (laughs) and mine too, that uh, like her phrasing, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, that the question that we usually ask ourselves is like, is this bad enough for me to have to change? And that the question should actually be, is this good enough to for me to stay the same? Yeah. And I think that you just got that almost exactly correct. So good job. Yeah. There you go. Well, I obviously, (laughs) I I read it enough times. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But yeah, that is, that's definitely, that's absolutely something that I think about all the time. Like, is this, you know, with every decision that I make about my life now, like not even, you know, everything that I've learned through quitting drinking, I've been able to apply it to the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And so, and I feel like the decisions that I make just keep 
you know, I would like to say getting better, but I mean, you know, everyone makes bad decisions. So I, they just get more enriching and I learn more from them because I'm able to apply all of, all of the stuff I've learned to them. So. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point, what you just said about, you know, the decisions aren't necessarily getting better. I hope that they are getting better. But because I think sometimes with things like sobriety or quitting drinking or cutting out, you know, what we see as a bad habit, that all of a sudden life is supposed to be this like magical, rosy situation. And right. a lot of it, I feel like for me, there was definitely a phase of like maybe continuing to make not so great choices, but at least being awake to the fact that that's happening. Like that's progress too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and life still sucks sometimes. <laughs> totally. Like, like really badly. And, but at least I can sit here and be like, you know what? I know it's not permanent. Like, I know that it's this suckage is going to get better at some point and it's just all how I'm going to deal with it. So, so here's an interesting question. What can you say about what you thought sobriety would be like versus what it's actually like, like expectations versus reality for you? Um, what's, I don't, you know what? I, I think that I actually like quit drinking in order to free my, free myself from, from thinking about drinking. So like my expectations were, were just simply that. And, and in reality, it's just so much better and so much more than that, because yes, I don't think about drinking anymore, but I also am, I'm just learning so much more, not only about myself, but about the world. And I'm, I'm able to like focus on learning new things and being open to new experiences and, um, you know, new complex thoughts that like I wouldn't have been able to do before because I was just so numbed out all the time. And just like on that, like buzzed level where like, I couldn't really like handle new complex ideas. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I I know a lot of people expect that they're going to, it's going to be boring or or this, that, or the other, but I feel like since I, I had some sober people in my life already, I knew that wasn't going to be the case. Um, or I hoped that wasn't going to be the case. And, and my thought process was, I was just sick of, I was sick of self-medicating and I was sick of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to hear um, that you just said it was helpful to have people who are already sober in your life. I, could, that, I mean, that sounds so obvious. Like, of course, yeah, yeah of course. And yeah. for me to think back, I didn't have that. And yeah. so I think so much of my so much of my decision to quit drinking, like it wasn't really something that I went back and forth about. Like it kind of just happened. I had obviously been thinking about it. But for, I mean, the most honest thing that I can say, I mean, I mostly quit drinking so that I would stop cheating on people. Like I was dating someone who I really liked and was like, okay, I'm not, I can't cheat on this person. And the only way that that's going to happen is if I stop drinking, there were other reasons too, but it, so of course, like now when you think of having to do the real work, like, okay, maybe let's look into what I wasn't letting myself express, like in romantic and sexual relationships that that was even right. Like there's other stuff and I'm doing that work now, like seven years later, like, fuck, there's still so much work to do. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, that I, I'm thinking about that. I didn't really have it modeled for me. Cause like you said, like social media wasn't really a thing as much like things like hip sobriety school didn't exist. Like I didn't really have any like sobriety role models. And I feel like people getting sober now, like that's such a huge, like these kind of internet communities are a huge gift. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's, it's so huge. And, 
And that's why it's like really important for me to talk about what I've been doing because it's it because as a lesbian, it's like really hard to find other queer women and and queer people that are talking about this in a way that's just like conversational and sharing stories, not in a way that's like, oh, come to this, you know, gay recovery meeting or like this treatment center is good for queer people. It's, you know, just in a conversational way where people can see that it's okay to be sober and gay. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And there, there, there's not much of that out there. I've, I've done a lot of looking <laughs> and there's not a lot of it. So, so yeah, I mean, I think in general, and this could be country specific or community specific, like I think drinking is such a cultural thing, right? How it operates mm-hmm. in London might be different than here in Bend, Oregon and anything, right? Like it operates differently in different communities. I would love for you to talk about the ways in which drinking is intertwined with queer culture, queer history, anything in there that you want to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's a really long history. Um, so back in, I say long history. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but I'm going to just go back to like the fifties and sixties right now, um, the 1950s and sixties where, um, you know, it was illegal to be gay. Like you weren't allowed to be gay. Um, you would get arrested. You couldn't wear, you had to make sure that you had a certain number of articles of clothing on that matched your, um, gender identity. So like women like myself who, um, are more masculine presenting had to make sure that they had like, you know, female underwear on and like a bra and, you know, all of these things. So that way, if they were stopped, they could be like, Oh no, look, I'm wearing, you know, three pieces of clothing that are, that are, are, you know, women's clothing. So it's okay. I'm not dressed in drag or dressed as the other gender. So, it was so hard to meet other gay people because of how everything was policed in that way. Um, that people would have like, you know, like secret gay bars or like undercover gay bars that were, or drinking parties at houses. And that is how, that's how you were able to meet people. Um, in New York city, um, in the sixties, it was actually illegal to, um, in a regular bar to serve gay people alcohol. So, um, like gay, gay men would like go to bars and if the bartender knew that they were gay, they weren't allowed to serve them alcohol. So, um, what happened was, uh, the mob decided like, Hey, we don't really care so much about the laws. So they opened, um, some gay bars in New York city and, and, and I'm saying New York City specifically because that's where the Stonewall Inn was, which is, you know, what kind of, like, the spark that, like, got the gay liberation movement, like, going. Um, and it was, you know, there were a lot of things that happened before that. But the Stonewall Inn was really where, like, modern-day pride came from. Um, so the the mob, you know, owned the Stonewall Inn and it was disgusting. Like they didn't even have running water behind the bar. Like it was gross. Um, but that's, that is where, you know, like the gay street kids and, um, you know, you know, the trans people and they were all able to go there and drink and be together and, and be happy. Um, but the, so the drinking played a huge role in that. That's, you know, go to, going to the bars. That was your safe space. That's where you could go. Um, but of course there were 
police raids. So because it was still illegal, police would raid gay bars across the country well into, you know, the 70s and even in and kind of like covert, like thinly veiled ways up into the 90s, even um, in early 2000s. So they would come in and they would raid and it was violent and they would, you know, beat up these, you know, gay people and they would take them downtown and, you know, they would publish their names in the newspaper and people would be outed and they would lose their jobs and everything. So they came in this on June 28th, 1969, they came in and these, you know, trans women of color and these gay street kids, they fought back and they created a riot. Um, and they rioted for five days, I mean, five nights um, in New York. And that was the start of Pride. But it was, everything has always been around bars. Like that's our safe space. That's where we felt that we had too much. So we fought back because we needed to have our sp safe space. And I mean, bars are like clubhouses, you know, it's like no girls allowed, like when you're a kid and there's, the, you know, the tree houses. So that, that was it. And, and that's how it continued to be, especially with no, no before the internet, when I was in my late teens, I belonged to uh, a LGBT youth group um, where you would, you know, once you turn 22, you would age out and you wouldn't be able to go anymore because you were no longer a youth. And the list of resources that there were for people who were over 22 was basically just a list of the gay bars in town. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's where you could go. That's, that's what you could do. That's where you met your people. Um, and the gay bar I went to, it was like cheers for me. I would walk in everyone. I would know everyone there. They would all know me. I would, you know, that was, that was like my little family. I, we all understood each other. We all drank a lot with that. That was it. And I grew up in a, you know, not a super small town, but in, in Southern New Hampshire. I mean, that was, that was how we were able to connect with each other all throughout like our our little area was to meet in bars and, and drink. And even in with Orlando uh, a couple of years ago at Pulse nightclub, it's still like gay bars are our safe place. That's where we can go. So by extension, that means alcohol is heavily involved in what we do, heavily involved in our socialization, heavily involved in our pride celebrations. They're all, you know, sponsored by alcohol companies they're sponsored by bars that's part of it it's part of the initiation when you're moving into the queer community especially once you're outside of a major metropolitan area yeah this makes me want to circle back to what we were talking about before about grief did you have any i mean i don't know if like grief is even the right word but in choosing to stop drinking in a way you're stepping away from a lot of that culture. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of hard. Uh, going to pride is kind of hard for me. Um, because I'm like, you know, you go and there's like the block parties that are packed and you buy your $10 Bud Lights and you know, you're, you're having a great time with everyone. Um, a lot of my, craziest drinking stories happened, you know, at Boston pride. Um, that that's, 
that's interesting. And that, that maybe I have a little grief with that, but I've been working really hard to, um, identify and connect with other sober queer people. Um, and I've been really working on, on trying to, um, create like connections and, uh, networks with each other. So that way we have that, that sober support and there are people out there and there are places to go and it's just, you have to work a little harder to find it. And, um, I'm like hoping that I can make it easier for other people to find each other. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, and again, it's being able to step out of the like, oh, well, either you drink like everyone else in your community or you're going to be alone and miserable, right? Like there has to be some yeah. other path. So this is, I guess, like a, a good place for you to start to talk about your website, your work. Like if you could give folks a quick description of what it is and why you started it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I currently, I have a, a blog and a uh, monthly feature um, on my website, uh, which is lgbttotaler.com. And, um, so my, my blog, like what I write about is really just like my experiences, my experiences as a queer woman who is sober, who is, you know, dealing with all of these things. But the thing I'm most excited about is I do a monthly feature called we're here, we're queer. And it's a different member of the LGBTQ community who is every it's any kind of recovery. Like I'm super down with sharing stories of people who have, you know, like eating disorders or a sexual trauma or, or what have you, because I feel like the process of getting over all of that is very similar for all of us. And I, I think that having the support of each other is just there. There's never a bad thing in supporting each other. Um, but yeah, so monthly I share stories of different people in the community. They share their recovery stories. A lot of times um, the discovery or the acknowledgement of their queerness comes along at the same time that they're they're dealing with their drinking. Um, so I was really lucky that I never had a problem with myself being gay. I came out uh, when I was 16 years old right after Ellen DeGeneres came out. So in 1997, um, and you know, I, I was supported by my family. I had a group of gay friends in high school. Uh, I never had a problem with that, but a lot of people, um, struggle with it and they struggle with the fact that, you know, it's not what they had thought they were going to be or what their families thought they were going to be um, or, you know, their religion or any number of things. I mean, it's it, anyone who says being gay is a choice, like who who's going to choose to be, you know, not considered a full actual citizen or, you know, human with rights. So people drink to deal with that. Um, and I think that part of what I want to do is like, show that we we can all be there and support each other and we don't have to drink to deal with that we don't have to do any of that um and i have a lot of i have a lot of different ideas that i'm going to be working on to you know help to create like more actual real communities you know in life communities with people um because i just think that the connections are really important so i've been working on you know talking to to other queer, sober people and trying to figure out 
what we want so we can create it for ourselves because nobody else is going to do it for us. Yeah. The importance of connection and community is again, one of those things I feel like is easy to say and also to at the same time undervalue, but the power of even one other person being like, Oh, me too. Like, Oh, I'm not alone. That I think is huge, not just in, you know, recovery, but in anything. And so, yeah, I mean, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you is uh, anything you wanted to share about your vision for the future of this project? Like what's something that you would love to do or see happen? Yeah, I think, um, and this is kind of a a small thing, but it'd be a big deal is that um, my friend and I were talking about pride and and I think it would be really cool to have like uh, LGBT teetotaler marching in pride, um, like a group of sober queer people marching in a pride parade and just like show everyone else like that, that is, you know, is possible. That's, it's a totally cool thing to do. Um, I also want to make sure that we can have a community that's not focused on substances where people don't necessarily have to be sober or in recovery, but like a community where young people can come in and be a part of the queer community without having to default to going to bars or parties or doing drugs or drinking, like have that resource be that resource for the kids who are aging out of youth groups that maybe don't have another place to go. That isn't a bar. Those are, those are two, two things that I'm really interested in accomplishing. Um, and there are a lot of other small ideas that aren't fully fleshed out yet, but I think it'd be cool. Yeah. It sounds like those two things in particular are things that were missing for you, like it makes sense essentially to be like, oh, I wish that I would have had this. So, hey, yeah. why can't I create this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that was the whole, the whole premise of me creating my website to begin with was me saying like, oh, like I need this, which means, and, and this is missing for me, like this connection is missing for me because I love my community. I love my, my sober community, you know? Um, and it, but it's overwhelmingly like, heterosexual and white and and I love them all so much but I just there is a certain like level of comfort and familiarity when you are able to surround yourself with people who are like you and have similar experiences to you and understand what it's like like to be able to under like have be able to talk to someone who understands what it's like like I get a little bit of anxiety going into public restrooms sometimes if I'm in a small town because, I mean, I'm afraid that people are going to think I'm like a 14-year-old boy, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I could, people have thought that before. So, like, having that, being able to, like, talk to people who understand that um, or understand other things that I've gone through is, like, really important. And um, a lot a lot of the people in my, in my current community, like, don't have that. They, it's not something that they've had to experience. So, um, it's just really, I think really important for us to all be able to have it. And the response that I've gotten so far from other sober queer people has been fantastic. Um, people have been really, it was something that people were missing and, and wanted. So I'm really excited about where this could go. Yeah. I mean, even just the, I mean, I'm really appreciative of the education that you provided just when you were talking a little bit about, right. 
alcohol and queer history and culture. But, and I think that even that, like, that's something that, you know, maybe someone who is in some kind of recovery and is straight and has never really thought about anything like that. Like, it's not a shared experience. It's not a shared background. It's not a shared culture. And it's not to Mm -hmm. say that you can't be in the same recovery space, but yeah, there's definitely something to be said for people having the same lived experiences because you're going to be coming at it from a different perspective than someone who doesn't have those experiences. And no matter how good of a listener someone is, or how much empathy they have, there's limits to that. Like you can't understand fully what you haven't experienced. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I am really into like creating like the diverse, like a diverse, um, recovery community. So I'm interested in like hetero people's experiences, but I'm also want to make sure that people of color are included and trans people and non-binary people and queer people. And I think all of that together because then once there are, once there is something that's more diverse, then you're able to have those conversations with members of the community that are like you, but then also get input from people who are different Mm -hmm. on other things. So, you know, varied experiences are really helpful. Like me, I, I, I learn things from people who aren't like me all the time because I have to, because there aren't very many lesbians creating content. So it's, I think it's really important for, for us to all be able to learn from each other, but have the ability to seek out people who are like us and just be able to get the comfort that we need from having that shared experience. I mean, yeah, so much of what I hear coming through and what you're saying is just underscoring, again, the importance of visibility and inclusion and representation and this idea that like it's so important for folks to be able to see their experiences reflected back to them in order to foster change like it's really difficult like even what I was saying oh I didn't have any sober friends and I know that's like one tiny example but if you don't see people who are like you however you define you know like you whatever that looks like doing this thing it seems like oh this isn't this is impossible or I'm out of my mind for trying to do this or this is going to be so hard or I have no resources And so like whatever those sort of identity markers are, being able to see people doing that and doing that in lots of different ways and that it's not so prescriptive. Again, I think that's something that's undervalued too, is just how important it is to be able to see someone else that you can look up to, that you can learn from, that's just like going through the same shit, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah, that's, I feel like that's the number one thing that can get people to want to make a change is seeing someone who's like them. Um, doing it themselves. Yeah. 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 Um, This might be kind of a strange question, but it's something that I've been thinking about. I think that oftentimes when we make big lifestyle changes, especially ones that fall on the kind of like healthy, not healthy narrative, right? Like quitting drinking is a healthy choice. It's, I think that it's really easy to begin to demonize your past self as a way to measure progress, like falling into the like old me, new me narrative, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I definitely did for years. And I'm only really starting to sort of check myself against the ways in which that can be problematic. And I'm curious if that's ever happened for you of sort of falling into this trap of like, well, old me was bad because X, Y, Z, but like new me who's sober. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, I very rarely think of things in like good, bad, um, kind of like terminology or, or ways because, um, 
you know, health and wellness culture kind of like makes me cringe. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and that is like that whole, like, oh, I'm, I'm good today. I'm eating healthy food versus I'm bad today. I'm eating bad food. It's that whole black and white part of it. Um, and I, I, I don't like it. So I try to not do that in my, in any other areas of my life either. Um, so I can look at like behaviors that I had and decisions that I made and be like, Oh God, I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. But I also can look back at myself and and have empathy for where I was at that time and what I was doing. Um, and just realize how lucky I am that I'm able to not be doing that anymore. Like, Oh my God, the number of times I drove drunk, I'm just so lucky. I never killed anyone or wrecked a car or anything like that. Um, and I don't look back at it like I'm, I was a bad person. I was just making these terrible decisions. And I'm lucky that I was not adversely affected by those decisions when I very, very easily could be. And I'm more thankful for that I was able to make it through that and learn from it than judgmental of who I was back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I, I guess I, I brought that up. I mean, it's again, so interesting to yeah. hear, you know, your experiences and where you're at. But I, I think that that's a really common thing that we do as soon as we make any kind of change is to, I don't know, like talk badly about our old self. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the the way that I stopped doing that was realizing just the danger of putting yourself on a pedestal in any regard that yeah. like, oh, this new me who's sober, because like you said before, like you could be sober and still be making bad decisions, right? Or yeah. still be doing yeah. things that don't really serve you. And I don't know, I think for me, back to when we were talking about expectations versus reality, I think that I had this idea that sobriety had to be this like, I don't know, yoga, green juice, like goop. Like like there was just like this like idea of what it meant to be sober. And sure, that's what it is for a lot of folks. And if that works for you, that's great. But that didn't work for me. And so it was just kind of interesting to be like, oh, wait, I can actually make sobriety look like whatever I want it to look like and sort of having to grapple with that and like the messiness of that. And, oh, it doesn't have to be this like pedestal perfect thing in order to still be something that serves me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm not like a yoga kind of person. And I think that going into it, like I tried, especially, um, you know, the, the first few months when you're like figuring things out and I tried all of that stuff, but I was very like anything that didn't feel right to me. I was like, no, thank you. Mm-mm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, the, that, that perfectionism, I think that's part of it. I think that a lot of people who end up feeling like who use alcohol to deal with situations or, you know, self-medicate are doing it because they, they're perfectionists and they want everything to be just right. And the only way that, you know, and at least for me, you know, like the only way that I can relax in from not be not doing things the right way is to drink. And, and as you move into recovery and sobriety, that, that continues and you want to do it all at once and you want to eat right all at once and you want to do all of this all at once. Um, but that, that's usually just doing too much all at once. (laughs) Yeah. And it goes back to what you said before that, like, it's actually enough to just not drink. Yes. Yes. And I, and I, I'm, I'm really lucky that I had someone telling me that 
from the very first, like day one, like it's okay. That's enough. And I, and I think that a lot of people don't have that because a lot of people don't have someone who's been sober for a significant period of time in their lives that are close to them to tell them that. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm thankful every day that I had that. And I think that that's probably shaped my experience with getting sober um, because I didn't feel like I had to be perfect at everything because I had someone I trusted telling me that I only had to do this one thing. Mm-hmm. Something else that I am hearing coming through what you're saying, or maybe this is just some kind of projection, is this idea that change takes time. And I think it's easy yeah. with something like drinking that has, like, it's a very clear behavior, right? Like you either drank or you didn't. So there is like a binary element to that for sure. And it's easy to think that, okay, well, I've stopped the behavior. So therefore like the change is complete. And I think that nothing could be further from the truth with that. And so right. it's like having patience, which is certainly not my strong suit. And I think that's true for a <laughs> lot of people. And just like grace about the fact that it's like, it is a huge change. It's going to take time. If it's something that you've been doing since you know, whatever age or for as many decades or, you know, for me, like my entire adult life until I quit, like it's really unrealistic to think that you're just going to stop drinking, you know, on a Monday and then Tuesday, you're going to be this entirely different person. Yeah. One of my favorite things to say is actually, you know, baby steps are still steps. So, you know, you can still be moving forward if you're moving forward slowly. And when I've talked to people who have been, you know, struggling in early sobriety or what have you, um, who've been, you know, like wanting to incorporate all of these great tools into their lives, but have been having a hard time juggling them all at once. The number one thing I tell them is like, pick one thing, pick one thing and do that every day and incorporate that in. So like pick your, you know, meditation and incorporate that in every day. And then once you feel like that's a part of your life, then you can add something else in. So if you, and eventually these small steps, these small actions you're taking are going to accumulate into a huge change. And it's going to be a huge change that you don't even notice because it's, it's going to take place in such an incremental way. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me too, the sort of expectations versus reality piece, I'm really surprised. So May 1st, or that was like a month and a half ago, um, was my seven year soberversary. And I'm so surprised, not that it's still hard to not drink because it's like, it's relatively easy. It's fine. But yeah. that there is still so much like work to be done and processing and like deeper fit. Like there, there's just stuff. Like, I think I thought that it would be like, okay, you get to a point and then just like, ta-da, you never think about this ever again. And like, maybe for some folks that's true, but for me, it's definitely mm-hmm. not. And it's been just like interesting to see, like, it's a longer process than I thought. And maybe it'll always be some kind of a process because fundamentally, like you said, if alcohol is the thing that you were using to deal with your feelings, which is a very human thing that you have to then deal with for the rest of your life. Like it always comes up in some capacity. Yeah. You're always going to want to escape. You're always going to want to check out and you're always, I mean, that's why we have, you know, Instagram and Netflix and, you know, running and hiking and all of these things, like some ways are healthier ways to check out than others. And, you know, some ways are, you know, like when I go hiking, I can like, like zone out on the hiking and, you know, I work through whatever's in my head, but it's kind of like a way to like escape what's going on 
which is very similar to how I also use my social media on my phone or how I also used alcohol or, you know what I mean? And it's, it's all very similar stuff and you're always going to have to work through it because it's always going to be something you don't want to deal with. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on kind of a, a very, I don't know, maybe like small scale or like super day-to-day level, what would you say are the best and worst parts of being sober for you? Um, well, the best part is that I, I always know that what I'm feeling and the interactions I have are like really how I feel. And it's not something I'm like trying to talk myself into. Mm, That's good. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, I think the worst parts, I mean, and are just having feelings and having to deal with feelings. Um, my whole first year of sobriety was just like teaching myself how to, have feelings and deal with them. Um, and now I'm better with it, but it's still like, they take me out sometimes. I have, um, I have PMDD. So I have like really intense, like, um, depression and anxiety that come along with that. Uh, so like on my menstrual cycle, it's just, it's can be super intense. So having, but I mean, conversely, I'm, I'm able to actually deal with it now instead of, just like kind of sweeping it under the rug, but dealing with those feelings and not being able to super numb out with them, I think is the hardest part. I have a friend who has recently decided to make the decision to quit drinking for a lot of the reasons that it sounds like for you too. It wasn't this like insanely dramatic thing. You know, it was just a decision that she's making in her mid thirties to do it and still is finding a lot of the things that we've talked about, the sort of fears, obstacles, things come up. And so I'm curious what your advice or even just like, I don't know, anything that you would want to say to someone who wants to quit, but is feeling afraid. Oh, just, do it. Uh, just do it and just focus on that because no matter what kind of fear you have, the benefits that come from it are just a hundred times better than any fear that you have of what might happen. It's just, I don't know. It's just the greatest thing. I feel like the connections, the people I've met me knowing now that like, I, I didn't even know that I was a nice person. Like, I didn't super realize it. I thought I was like a bitch. But you know what? I'm a really, really nice person. I'm really empathetic. And I didn't know that. It's just sticking to it. If you're curious with it for it, you know, to quit drinking, like, just do it because you're just going to learn so much about yourself. Yeah, I love what I'm hearing you say, essentially just about like experimentation. Like if you're curious about it, you're probably curious about it for a reason or if it's something you've been thinking about, you're thinking about it for a reason. And so something I like to think about is, Yes, it can be a serious choice, but is there a way to make it a little bit lighter or to have fun with it? Like, what if you just try, right? And like, see how that goes. And I don't know, the conversation that I had with this particular friend was interesting because I haven't had a friend quit drinking really in a very long time. So being where I'm at like seven years, like trying Mm -hmm. to think back to that time. And we had a really frank conversation and, you know, she, one of the things that she was saying is, you know, she's like, I'm not going to miss drinking too much. I'm not going to miss being hungover. I'm not going to miss like any of those things. She was like, but I definitely feel like I'm going to miss that. Like, two drinks in feeling where it's like really good. And I'm like, well, yeah, you are going to miss that because there's no substitute for that. And like, even saying that out loud, I like almost felt like a bad sober person, right? That it's like, no, I'm supposed to say that you're going to like, nope, that feeling is awesome. There's a reason that we all chased that feeling and it'll still be worth it. Right. That it's like, 
sort of the dichotomy of like, yeah, you'll miss stuff. Yeah, it can be hard. And also it's still worth it. Like there's never a day, even when I do feel like I miss it or I think back to any of these things, it's still the better choice for me. And that's really comforting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, even so, you know, like that two drink feeling, like you have it and it's great and it's fantastic, but how often do you stay there? You know, you're going to come down eventually or you're going to get too drunk eventually. And just even watching movies where like I can see someone like a good actor, like acting hungover. And I'm just like, I'll look at it and it'll like make my stomach turn. And I'm just like, I'm so glad I don't, that's not what I do anymore. I'm just so glad that's not my life anymore. But to your point about, you know, just being curious about it. I know a lot of people will just say like, I'm going to do a hundred days or I'm going to do a year and just see what happens. And a lot of times people will just continue with their sobriety journey from there. Um, I mean, sometimes people start drinking again because it's not worth it for them, but just to try like a set amount of time um, and just see how it is, is kind of a pretty genius way to start it out. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of experimentation. I mean, that's how I started. I did five weeks. of. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, let me try this for five weeks. And then after the five weeks, I basically took a month to test stuff. Like, oh, I'd have a beer. I'd have that. I'd have that. And the anxiety that I felt in that month of trying to moderate, like quitting mm-hmm. drinking was worth it just to not have to do that anymore. And I think right. that's, that's true for a lot of folks. Like some things I can moderate and some things I can't. So, like sometimes abstinence is just the easier choice. Oh my God, yeah, the... The thinking about it, the thinking like, oh, like I'm going to just have one drink tonight when, oh, this is my night that I can drink or how many should I be drinking or how many shouldn't I be drinking or am I, you know, just thinking about it is so exhausting. And it's like, I just have so much more like mental room now that I don't need to think about that. It's just it's just taken a huge weight off of my shoulders. I'm not worrying about it. I'm not anxious about it. I'm not nothing. It's just like, no, I just don't drink. Mm-hmm. Someone asks me, do you, are, are you still not drinking? I'm like, yeah, no, I, I don't drink. Like I just don't. <laughs> yeah. Not having to do those mental gymnastics is definitely one of my favorite parts of being sober. And I would say another one of my favorite parts, and I think this plays in particularly to my specific reasons for quitting drinking. Like I said, I really use drinking as kind of like the get out of jail free card. Like I would sometimes intentionally get drunk, like so that I could knowingly the next day use the drunk excuse for things. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not proud of that, but that's just an honest thing to say. And so now while it is hard and painful sometimes, at least I can't lie to myself anymore about what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, which don't get me wrong, doesn't mean that I always make great choices, but right. at least like they're premeditated choices. Like at least like there's, there's just something that I have found while it's been painful, very gratifying and like a huge fertile growth ground of, okay, well I'm the one that's making all these choices. I like literally don't have anyone else to blame this on or any substance to blame this on. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, like when I would drink a lot, I would do like, you know, take my clothes off all the time or what have you. But now that I'm sober, I still take my clothes off all the time. Turns out that's just who I am and that and I'm totally okay with that. But I mean, at the time, I might have thought that I was just like doing it because I was drinking. You know, it's just like that whole like learning who you are and like learning about yourself. And knowing what you can and can't do or knowing what you really truly want to do and what the alcohol was 
encouraging you to do. Yeah. I mean, and can you get to a place where you give yourself permission to just be more of who you are without needing to use some kind of like inhibition lowering substance in order to do that? And that's been a really interesting process for me. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So you mentioned a while ago about uh, how like the process of sobriety has just taught you a lot about change in general. And I would love to hear anything in that. Like, is there anything that you learned through the process of getting sober that's been helpful in making other changes or any sort of carryover lessons for you? Yeah. Um, so some, some things are just, you know, like learning how to like, just be relaxed and, and, and know that life is going to happen and the way it's going to happen and I can't control it. Um, case in point, the company that I worked for went out of business, um, in July of 2016. So about six ish months into me being sober. Um, and I, they kept me on until the end of last year to help like wind things down. Um, but in that whole process, I have been able to actually, use the skills that I've learned in sobriety, like, you know, like breathing and, and taking things as they come and, and not trying to be like, you know, overly, you know, controlling and, and all of this stuff in, you know, dealing with the uncertainty of a, at the, you know, like how my job, I knew my job was ending. I didn't know exactly when it was going to end for a long time. And then now like this year I have been, mostly unemployed for this year. So like dealing with that and being able to like, you know, make smart decisions and and figure out what I can be doing and do my unemployment, do the tasks that I need to do. Like all of these things are things that I've learned the skills um, from sobriety. I mean, before I was just like, I'm going to just put that off and hope it goes away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, that, that was me. That's what I did. I didn't, you know, I didn't know my credit score. I didn't open my bills. I didn't do any of that. I just avoided everything. And, you know, now I have a bomb ass credit score and I, you know, deal with stuff and I take care of myself and I just do all of these things. I I, I don't think I would have done before. Yeah. I can relate a lot to the heart of what you're saying. This idea of like, kind of what I was saying before about loving that sobriety means that I really can't lie to myself or I can, but not in the same way. And what I'm hearing you say is about just you have to face stuff or, or I guess you build like through facing drinking and like learning how to deal with feelings and everything that comes up after that, you do build resilience and it's easy to try to over compartmentalize our lives, but skills that you build in one area can be taken over to another area. And I've seen the same be true that I'm like, okay, well I dealt with this and like I made it through that. So probably I can also turn around and face this other thing that I wasn't willing to face. And that winds up being sort of like a domino effect. Yeah, absolutely. I, all the time I'm just like, well, I've done X, Y, and Z. So I, I know that I can do A, B, and C. Like, I just know it because I've done all of these other really hard things. So, yeah. Yeah, I think about that. I mean, this is something that I talk about a lot about sort of the inherent value of doing hard things. And that what you just spoke to is like, the quintessential reason why. It's like when you do a hard thing, no one can take that away from you, whatever it is. Like you have that experience and then that becomes the foundation on which like your higher levels of self-belief can be grown, right? That's like, oh, well, I made it through this hard thing. Okay, cool. What if I'm a person who can do hard things? All right, cool. What if I do this? That Like that it just, it, it does. It continues to grow and swell. And then all of a sudden you can turn around and two years or five years or seven years go by and you're like, oh shit, like I'm a different person, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, Sometimes I look back and I'm like, oh, 
wow, like I, I make decisions in a very different way than what I used to. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that kind of change, like change is so interesting because even though it might start with a, you know, really discreet or like distinct decision in Hawaii to stop drinking, right? Like, sure. Mm -hmm. Like you can pinpoint that to a moment, but it does happen gradually, right? That you do have that moment where you turn around and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like, and then it does kind of sneak up on you, which I think is like the beautiful unexpected thing about change. Oh yeah. I love that about it because one day you're just sitting there and you're doing something and then you remember an experience that you had maybe like three or five years ago and you're like, holy shit. Like this, the me that is me now is just unrecognizable, would be unrecognizable to the me from five years ago. Just the things that I would do and that I have done, or I've just done so many things that that person would not do in a good way, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, it is, it, I, I think almost every day I sit back and I, I marvel at that. I marvel at that almost every single day. Yeah. So obviously we've just talked about a lot of different sort of angles and elements of sobriety. Is there anything that hasn't come up that you'd love to discuss or share? I can't, I can't think of anything specific. No, no. I mean, I feel like we've really run the gamut here. (laughs) (laughs) You have a lot of great questions. (laughs) Oh, well, thanks. Well, okay. So this might be sort of a a totally different pivot, but the one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, um, when we were emailing about what we wanted to discuss today, one Mm -hmm. of the things that you said that I underscored and was interested to follow up on that you said that you wanted to talk about how the words we use matter often, regardless of their intent. And I wasn't sure even really, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, that sentence, yeah, I agree with that, but I'm interested why you said that and what you wanted to talk about about this idea that like our words matter regardless of their intent. Yes. I forgot. I even wrote that down. So thank you. Um, yeah. So, um, what I've been reading about and dealing with about a lot lately, and especially, um, in the LGBT community, um, is, you know, about words, like how, how the way we address people, how the words that we use have a big impact. Um, So an example that I have is, you know, like for people who are trans or non-binary, you know, using, making sure that we're, we're using words when we um, address groups of people that are inclusive of all different kinds of people. So instead of, um, saying something like, and, and this is something that everyone says all the time, but we say like, Hey guys, what's going on? But like saying that, um, while, you know, like some people who maybe are like very comfortable with their, you know, like gender identity or like being on the, the gender binary would be completely comfortable with that. That can be like a really uncomfortable word to use, um, for, for people who are non-binary or for like trans women who are worried about the fact that maybe they're not passing enough as a woman and then they have to worry about like violence, you know? So something like that can create a lot of like anxiety for people. Um, so for making sure that we, we use words that, that are just as inclusive as possible and that, that marginalized communities like have told us or are okay to use or, or are preferred to use. Um, I wrote, I recently 
wrote um, a piece about like trying to be more inclusive of LGBTQ people in the recovery community. Um, and in that, you know, I included also like tips about like just heteronormativity and how that it's very like, you know, just part of everyday life. So for children growing up, you know, it's assumed that they're going to be straight, whether you actually like visibly, like actually think that consciously or not, it's assumed, especially, you know, when you hear mothers talking about like their, their infants and they're like, oh, he's going to be a lady killer when he grows up or, oh, she's going to have to beat the, the guys off with a stick, you know, like they're going to be all over her. Um, or, you know, like, oh, you know, this baby and their best friend, like, oh, they're just going to get married when they grow up. Things like that. Like just the heteronormativity that's like imposed upon us from infancy. Um, I think that stepping back and thinking about that and thinking about the words that we use to convey what we're saying is like really important uh, in order to make sure that people feel like they're welcome and mm -hmm. also feel like there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah, the, the thing that I was thinking about while you were talking, this separation between the words that we use and their intent, I think mm -hmm. is brilliant and really necessary because especially in how we take criticism, like I think mm -hmm. if someone criticizes you know, let's say me for, you know, using the wrong phrasing or, you know, like you say words, right, that had a hurtful outcome, even if that wasn't your intent, the like mm -hmm. defensive response is almost always, oh, but that's not what I meant, or that wasn't my intention. Okay, right. well, no one was attacking your intent. They're just asking you to change your language, right? So being right. able to put a little bit of distance between the thing that came out of your mouth and the, not to say people shouldn't be held responsible for that, but Okay, right. like, yeah, it wasn't your intent, but just because it wasn't your intent doesn't actually mean that it wasn't harmful. Right, yeah. And to say, you know, in, in that kind of situation, and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I will change in the future. You know, just like, you can still say you didn't mean it like that, but also take responsibility for the fact that that's how it was taken and that you are going to change in the future. Mm -hmm. You know? And, and I just... Yeah. I, you know, I have a, a few friends or I don't know a few, I definitely have one friend who has a child um, who is non-binary and they are 12 or 13. And it's just been my, my friend, she has been doing a fantastic job advocating for her child, but just seeing and hearing stories um, about the kinds of things that they have to deal with in day to day, it's, it has a huge impact on this child's like mental health and ability to um, cope because they're also on the spectrum. So there, there are a lot of things going on. And the fact that, you know, some people in this child's life just don't respect the fact that they're non-binary um, even if so, like, they like to say, well, well, this, this kid is too young. They couldn't possibly know. And it's like, well, even, even if that's the case, so say that's the case, say this child is too young, say it is a phase, what harm is it in respecting what they want? And then if it changes, then respect if it changes, uh, you know, I just don't, I don't understand. Like for me, I can't grasp that, but you know, this, 
this kid is having a really hard time. And it's, you know, the words that we use every day and not using their pronouns and not using the name that they are comfortable with has a profound impact on how this child is going to develop. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this can also be true for adults and, you know, not respecting, you know, adults and, and how they identify or, or language that is respectful for them um, can have a huge impact on adults and, and how they are able to cope with their daily situations and, you know, trans people and bi people and they, they all have much higher rates of, of drinking and using drugs than, than heterosexual people or even gay people. Um, because, because both groups are, it's, they like bisexual people often feel invalidated and invisible because people assume that their identity is based on the partner that they currently have. Um, and then also trans people, not only do they feel invisible a lot of times, but they feel very visible and that's dangerous. So being able to respect people and use words that are inclusive for those people can literally change their lives and be, life or death for them. Yeah. So then the last question that I want to ask, and it can be about language choice or something different. What would you love to see happen within the larger recovery community to make it more visibly inclusive for LGBTQ folks who are sober or want to be sober? What's something you'd love to see happen? Um, yeah, I think, I think it would be language related and I, I would love to see, um, I mean, and not everyone wants to be inclusive. So I'm, you know, but for people who want to be inclusive and want to make sure that the LGBT community um, has a place, I, I would really love to see um, people who are, you know, part are, are leaders of of groups and communities to a stop using heteronormative language. So you know, instead of saying, you know, if, if say like you were having are trying to relate to a group of people instead of saying like, Oh, you know, husbands, am I right? You know, you can be like, Oh, spouses, am I right? You know, just something like that. That's it's so easy. And it's rarely going to even be like an issue or a problem for, for you, but it makes a huge difference for the people who are listening. Um, but also I, I think that, Oh, I had something else and I lost what it was. Oh, um, including, including queer people and people of color in your events and in your materials and in like, if you're looking for ideas or creating content, like including these people in making the content and it's just going to inherently make it more inclusive. So if you're having a conference, um, make sure that you have like not just a token gay person and just a token person of color, but, a wide variety of people mm-hmm. um, with a lot of different differences because like there's nothing worse than just like seeing a conference that you want to go to and you're like, Oh, there's the token gay. It's like, no, like I'm not, I'm not into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I think that that's a really good place to start to wrap up. And the way yeah. that we end these episodes are with some hopefully fun, rapid fiery questions. Basically, um, the Patreon community, the people who support and fund the show, every season we choose um, some questions. It's seven questions this season that all eight guests are answering the same seven questions if you're down to answer some random questions. Absolutely. 
Um, so the first one is about money. So when it comes to money, what's one thing that you purposefully don't spend much on? And then on the flip side, what's one thing that's a totally worthwhile splurge for you when you can? Um, so I, it's probably kind of like the same thing. So like, I don't spend a lot of money on clothes. Like I will either buy like secondhand clothes or like I've just been wearing the same clothes for years and years and years. Um, just because my style really hasn't changed, but also I spend a ton of money on underwear. Like I have found this tomboy X is just like the underwear I've been searching for my entire life. It's basically boxer briefs that are made for a woman's body. And, you know, they, they run, you know, like they're about like $30 a pair, which is a lot of money to me. I'm unemployed. Um, so, but yeah, that's, those are my things. Yeah. But it brings you joy. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> What's one thing that you really love about yourself? Oh, I love a lot of things about myself, but I guess like the number one thing I love about myself is just like how much I love other people. I just like love other people so much. It makes me want to cry sometimes. So. That's such a sweet answer. <laughs> um, what's a recent shift or decision that you made that's had a big impact in your life? The biggest one I'm not ready to talk about yet. So the second biggest one is probably this five week long trip that I'm on in the Northeast. Um, I feel like I'll make a lot of really great connections and see my family and friends, but it's kind of a big decision to make when I don't have any income coming in. Yeah, sure. Or maybe <laughs> it's the best time to do it because you're <laughs> yeah. probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, so looking back, what's one decision in your life, maybe something we haven't already talked about that felt incredibly hard to make the decision at the time? Oh, Yeah probably like leaving New Hampshire. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it was a hard decision. I'm from here. I lived here and just packing up and road tripping across the country and moving to Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't get much yeah, farther away. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big deal. Um, if anything were possible, what's one of your big dreams or fantasies? Oh, um, God, like, having enough money to be able to still just kind of like do what I'm doing now, which is just like writing and talking to people and, you know, having great ideas and learning things. Yeah. I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, the next question is about books, which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Um, so one of them is a book that I first read when I was in like third grade. Um, and it's just, it's a novel. It's a sci-fi novel. I've probably read it 12 times though. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. And it's just really interesting for me because of how, you know, the is like behavior of children and military behavior and that sort of thing. Um, but otherwise like my other two books, or a book or what have you um, that I read or reread or I don't know. I've been, the books that I've been reading lately have been really, really impactful for me. Um, like the ones I, I feel like I mentioned in the beginning. Um, um, well, that escalated quickly by Francesca Ramsey, eloquent rage by Brittany Cooper. Um, and the when they call you a terrorist by Patrice, 
Colors, I believe, is their last name. We started Black Lives Matter. Those are those all have changed my life. Mm -hmm. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Um, Yeah. So are you listening to what other people need? Are you just assuming what they need? Mm. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I try to do like every day and I've been trying to learn to be better at it. Um, but like actually listening to what people want from you and what they need as opposed to just assuming it. Yeah. And even asking if you aren't yeah. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's I've been, that's something I've been learning in sobriety. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Instagram is my number one. I'm there a lot. Um, so my Instagram is Murph the jerk. Um, or I'm also on Facebook sometimes at LGBT teetotaler, or you can check out my website too, if you want to read what I'm up to, which is also LGBT teetotaler.com. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music, which is awesome, by the way, and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Nicole. I'm going to ask you five rapid-fire questions if you're ready to uh, tell me some things about yourself. I'm ready. My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? (laughs) I was ready for this one. I knew this was coming. Um, So I'm totally obsessed with getting ready for summer. It's almost June. Um, June is my birth month. And so I'm a summer child, and I'm getting super into planning like the hikes I want to do. I've been looking into inflatable kayaks um, that I want to get to take out on flat water. Um, And just, I always come up with a list of everything I want to do in the summer. So that sounds like such a fun, intentional way to spend your summer. When's your birthday? Uh, It's June 19th. Oh, mine's the 13th. Oh, exciting. Gemini twins, right? You're still in the, I was going to say, you're still in the Gemini window. I am. Yeah, that's cool. Gemini season is in full swing right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite time of year. I know, same. Um, What's something that's been feeling frustrating for you lately? Like one thing or area of your life that you are currently finding challenging? Um, So probably time, just um, free time and sort of that not necessarily the work-life balance, but I work a really traditional, actually eight to five job during the week. And so for me, just like finding the time in the evenings and finding the time on the weekends to, and even finding time during the workday to kind of have time to myself and explore the things that I want to explore and things I'm curious about and have time to read. That's, um, particularly frustrating right now, especially with it being close to summer. I really 
wish I had the summer off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's something that a lot of people seem to care about that you just can't get into or something that a lot of people seem to prioritize, but you just don't really care? (laughs) Um, Honestly, like everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like houses, cars, clothes, shoes, jewelry, makeup, uh, home decor, uh, so literally everything, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally everything. It's it is one of those things where I often feel like I'm just I like not participating in something. Like I'm always on the outside, kind of looking in. Um, I just going. I don't. I don't know. It's just I. None of that stuff. I'm. I'm particularly interested in. Well, you're definitely not the only one, but yes, I understand that feeling for sure. Um, (laughs) What would you say is your secret weapon in your healthiest relationship? Oh, um, enthusiasm. Uh, That one's actually really easy. Um, Yeah, just being enthusiastic. I mean, I'm married. um, I've been married for 14 years. um, And I think... This also applies to all kinds of relationships, friendships, you know, sibling relationships, parent-child. Um, just, yeah, being enthusiastic about the other person and um, sort of supporting what they're interested in and being enthusiastic about what they're interested in, even if it's not totally your thing. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that that's probably the, my secret weapon. That's really well said. That's a lovely answer. So the last question, what's one specific thing that you wish that people were more open and honest about? Um, I, you know, a lot of what other folks mention, like money and sex. Um, and, but also for me, I feel like I want people to talk more about just how hard it is sometimes to be a feeling person in the world and um, just how hard it is to have a human life and human emotions and a human brain that's always thinking and, um, you know, living in a society and social relationships and just, yeah, just how difficult it can be just to be a feeling person in the world. Um, I feel like there's always... Um, you know, you, you talk to people and it's like, I'm fine. I'm like, everything's fine. And I'm like, aren't you freaking out? Or <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> aren't you just, you know, just so despondent or sad or, or exhilaratingly joyful or, you know, any of those range of emotions. Um, it just feels crazy. I feel like sometimes it's just crazy to be a person in the world. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) Totally. Um, so you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I'm very grateful. And I would love for you to share two things first, why you decided to support the show. And then second, um, what you love most about being in our little community. Um, so why, I decided to support the show Um, goes back to what you've talked about many times about just, um, you know, the every dollar you spend is a dollar in support of the kind of world you want. And 
I really take that to heart and really believe that. Um, and I love the podcast and I get so much out of it and I want to make sure it continues. Um, and then also I want for you to have support. I feel like you're, you really put yourself out there and you're so honest about your own life and what's going on in your life that I want. And I think, you know, others in the community want you to feel supported that like, we're there for you. So you can continue to do that work. Cause I don't think it's easy to do that work and to put yourself out there like that. Um, and then in terms of getting what I get out of the community, it's kind of everything. Um, I really love the Friday emails. I was really surprised, um, how much I loved getting those and how much I look forward to that. Um, I love the book club and the sort of discussion section on Patreon. Um, I really love the Google Hangouts and getting to meet other folks. And um, I went to a live event. Um, just hey, you and I have been hanging this out month. this year. It's amazing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really loved that. It was so great to connect with other people and the, um, you know, this community that you create and inspire people to be honest um, about what's going on in their life. It's such a great way to connect with other folks with that sort of overarching theme of just being honest. Um, so yeah, kind of everything. No, I, I, I mean, it's, it warms my heart so much to hear you say that. And just a shout out to everyone who came to the DC event. I mean, all the live events, but that one, obviously, since it was most recent is fresh in my mind and how warm and wonderful and honest and unbelievable that group was. Yeah, it was so, so great. Um, Thank you. So will you share last thing um, where you live and maybe if you want to share like a social media link or something so people can reach out to you? Sure. Um, I am in Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, I don't have a lot of social media, but I do have Instagram. Um, and I'm uh, Mama Deva on Instagram. It's um, M-A-M-A-D-A-Y-V-A. Um, it's an old nickname that my son gave me when he was like two years old. So cute. Oh, see, look at that. I learned <laughs> something else about you. Um, so thanks so much. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I honestly can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 